0: we yeah. yeah. The Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host Stephen Hayden. Today we're hitting you with a double shot of interviews with great musicians. I talked with Lindsey Jordan of the band Snail Mail uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, her debut album Lush comes out on Metador Records June 8th. It's one of the most anticipated indie records of the year. You've probably read about her on the New York Times and Pitchfork and Spin and Gum and basically every form of media. But this is the first thing you really have to pay attention to. <laughs> my interview, my podcast with Lindsay. I'm just kidding, of course. You should read all those other things. There have been a lot of great stories written about her. But this podcast is fun. You know, a lot of times when artists emerge... They become subject to narratives in the in the media, and a lot of the same things kind of get written about them, and uh, it's all in the service of talking about great music and getting people excited about it, but it can be a little tiring, you know, and it can be weird for the artists themselves to see themselves sort of reflected in a certain way in the media and maybe reduced to a certain set of talking points. Well, with Lindsay and I, basically for a half hour, we just talked about guitar shredding and hockey. that was the extent of our interview and it was awesome, man. You know, Lindsay is, um, you know, she's 19 years old. She's been playing guitar since she was like five years old and the guitar is a big part of her life. So she loves talking about it. So we talked a lot about the guitar and how she got into that and how she loves to play. And and then she's also a hockey fan. You might've seen a recent, recent music video that she was in where she's playing hockey. She's skating around and, uh, She actually is a hockey player in real life. So, we were talking about that as well. And uh, it was just fun. Guitar shredding and hockey. I think that should be maybe the new theme of the podcast. Just shredding and hockey. That might be the new name going forward. So, we're going to start off with my interview with Lindsay. And then after that, we're going to go into another interview that I did recently with Molly Rankin of the band Always. I met met up with her at the Homecoming Festival, the, the Nationals Festival that they did in late April. In Cincinnati. You might remember we ran an an interview with Matt Berninger and Aaron Desner of The National that I recorded at that festival. The following day after I talked to them, I talked to Molly. We met up at this um, hotel downtown where there was was a drag breakfast. So you had people in drag eating breakfast. (laughs) And then Molly and I were in the corner, uh, talking about indie rock. you know. So that was the scene for our interview there. Um, and of course, always, if you don't know, one of the best young bands in indie rock today. Uh, their record, Anti-Socialites, their second record came out last year. One of my favorite albums of the year. I think it made my top 20. And of course, their self-titled record came out in, in I believe, 2014. And uh, you know, they just make perfect-sounding, melancholy, fuzzy pop rock songs. The kind of songs that you just want to play over and over again, especially if it's a rainy day or if you broke up with someone or uh, someone was mean to you. <laughs> you want to listen to always. Uh, so it was great talking with Molly. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of her band for a long time. So that was great to meet up with her at the drag breakfast <laughs> and talk. So that's a great interview as well. But before we get to that, here is me and Lindsay Jordan of Snail Mail talking about shredding and hockey. Before I uh, talk to you today, um, your publicist sent me over like this frequently asked questions that you get asked a lot, and she, you know, politely asked that I not sort of delve into like the normal interview subjects that you get that you have to talk about. You know, I so I and I wasn't gonna ask about that stuff anyway because I think it's boring. But you know, one thing that's always intriguing to me with artists, especially artists at the beginning of their career, is like what it's like. When the media starts to notice you and they write about you and you notice certain narratives take place about your art or you see yourself being put in different contexts is it hard not to let that impact what you do creatively does that is that hard to keep that out of your mind or is it basically impossible to ignore that stuff
1: um it's it's definitely hard to ignore um it like kind of gets in for for me at least it gets in my head a lot and, and mostly just annoys me. Um, and I, I take a lot of pride in my work and, um, I'm just like a, a songwriter before anything else. So it's mostly just the categorization of snail mail being just like this, like woman centric rock outfit, that has everything to do with my age and gender and sexuality and nothing to do with the music which just gets to be really frustrating because I just put so much of myself into the songs and uh, and yeah, the the output feels like sort of like sometimes like a pat on the back that I don't want for things that I can't control
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, did you feel like that was happening like immediately as soon as people were paying attention to what you were doing?
1: Actually, I didn't um, habit it sort of felt like i think maybe since we came up in the DIY world um it was like that you know a lot of voices were being pushed to the front that aren't usually being pushed to the front um in that in that world with, with a lot of punk bands around us and a lot of like politically driven individuals so it it wasn't it it was more like the norm in that community um so when we started getting like, making strides in that world. It was like people were really excited about the songwriting, which was like so rewarding and awesome and just made me want to keep writing.
0: <laughs> and then, um,
1: and then I, I was more than psyched for it to, to be like picked up outside of that world. And I'm having such a great time with everything except for just trying to, not, I mean, and there's not much that I can do, but just trying to, Pretend like people aren't isolating it for who I am, rather than like what the songs are, what the songs are in their essence, and and what they're about, and what what I'm actually about. Because it kind of also feels like people are ignoring what I'm saying. Like, like I've, I've like been saying the same thing since the beginning, and and it's just that I'm really here for like the songs, and I I don't feel like I don't feel like any. Any different than anyone else playing music just because I'm a woman right. or or young, and and that's what I've that's been my message since the beginning, and it still feels like people are like, that's so sick that you're a girl, and it's like, <laughs> well, is it or is it just the person that I am?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think people are talking about your record because they really love it. I mean, there's been a lot of excitement in the sort of buildup to the record. It's it's strange because the record isn't coming out until June. I know I've had it for at least a month or two. It feels like the record's already out in a way if, I guess if you are in the press and you got an advanced copy, um, but I mean, the buildup has been pretty long uh, to, to uh, the release in June, but um, there is that excitement I think over the music, but then just because of how the media works, there is this mythology that gets sort of projected onto onto bands, It's sort of inevitably. It's like talking about music can only happen for so long and then people have to talk about something else and I mean is there any part of you that feels like that can be a necessary evil in a way because it does bring people to the record and hopefully they love the record
1: um I I think I could see I could see how that um could maybe be in some people's eyes like a necessity, but I just uh I don't know I I just have been like trying to separate myself from it for so long and like so many of so many musicians that I admire and, and really like respect don't seem to have like a story like that, um, and and it just feels like you know there's so many guitarists that and musicians that I feel like we could be getting compared to that we're not getting compared to uh, because that's because I'm like a, a woman or
0: or what have you, and, and I
1: have talked about feminists stuff and and politics in the past because it is like who I am as a person and I I totally identify with all of the politics that we're aligning ourselves with and stuff but but yeah I mean it just sort of feels like once that all dies down then then it's like there are people who are here for a reason other than for the music and it it feels a little like false and I, I think I would rather just not even have I mean like I would rather just if, if that were to go away and, and there were less tension, I think I would be accepting of it. I, I just, like, really want people to hear the songs and listen to them for what
0: they are. Right, right. So you want people to be there because they're like, Heatwave has such tasty licks, and I'm here for the yeah, tasty licks. Yeah, yeah, tasty licks, likes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about songwriting, uh, because, I mean, you, you, you're already a veteran songwriter in many ways. I mean, you've been writing songs, I guess, you know, for several years. How did you get started with that? Like, how what, how is that something that you decided that you wanted to do?
1: Um, I think it's sort of just an innate thing, uh, for like, for, for me, it sort of always has been because I've just like always been a guitar player. Um, and I, have always had, I've always been writing music on the guitar and I only started accompanying it with lyrics when I sort of wanted an outlet and I never really like had any intention to share the songs. With other people, it was sort of just like that was like my equivalent to just having like a journal or just some way to state out how I was feeling to keep myself sane and occupied. Because um, I was just always writing like licks on the guitar or, or riffs or whatever. Just growing up, I just there at some point I think I just I just wanted that diary type outlet, and so I started like accompanying it with lyrics and i i I always wanted to so i always wanted i never wanted to be a singer but i always wanted the ability to sing um so i i because i i didn't i was whole guitar player for for so long in my life and when i was like 12 or 13 um and i was writing these like guitar parts um with no lyrics to accompany them it sort of just felt incomplete like i wasn't i wasn't wouldn't be able to like Finished the song unless I was a singer too, so I sort of just taught myself how to sing and and was like playing covers in my room and then and then eventually just yeah writing songs and showing them to friends and, and recording them on the garage band and that's
0: it. Now, like it's interesting because you were saying that you were you were a guitar player before you were a songwriter, or at least you were writing guitar instrumentals and maybe riffs or, or whatever. Like, were you one of those, like, were you like a like a guitar nerd? Like, were you reading magazines? Like, did you have posters on your walls of guitarists? Like, did, like was it ever like that for you?
1: Oh, yeah. I was a, I was a freak about it. I, <laughs> I started when I was five, and I took, like, really intense um, lessons for a really long time. I was classically trained, um, and I, I played in the jazz band in school, and then I did... I was in church band when I was younger and I played guitar in the play in high school at some point. And like, I was just, yeah, I was very, very driven, uh, definitely like, a uh, like a perfection freak. So I would just like practice like from literally from ages five to like now for like two hours a day in my room, just like, just like practice the same thing over and over and over again. And like, I, I just, yeah, I mean, of course I had, I had like Zeppelin posters all over my room and like ACDC and stuff. I was like a hard rocker, um, and and yeah, I mean it was it was very much it was just like always my outlet, um, and I just I've like pretty much always been a, a perfectionist about it, and I, I'm still the exact same way. I just like sit in my room for like hours and hours and hours and try to like perfect someone else's guitar solo or something, and and yeah, I mean. That just never really, that interest never really wavered for me. Luckily,
0: because that that always blows me away about guitar players. Because you know, I've tried many times to pick up the guitar and try to learn it, and it it just I don't have that thing that you need to be a guitar player. It just doesn't make sense. It hurts my hands. It seems too hard and boring. And yet, the people who do get it, who have that knack, they're like you. They can spend hours just just practicing and, and, and working at it, you know, for years. What was it about playing the guitar for you that meant so much?
1: Um, I I think it just was something that I had to myself and I didn't have to I didn't have to compete against other people. I like loved I mean sports were always a really important part of like my childhood and stuff, but it 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 like opened up this like insecurity that I I was always struggling to be like equal with the other hockey players or or better. And I just didn't, and having, having guitar to myself and not having to do anything to to compete with other people and just being able to better myself alone and being in my room practicing and just having that thing that I I was always like really good at. Like, I mean, I, since, since I started so early, I was like, I had that, like, I had that, Upper hand, so I was always like a, above average at guitar, and and so it was just yeah. It, I mean, it was just like my thing, and I think it was really like all I knew for a while. And since I started it so young, it just was always there for me as a pastime and something I could work towards. So yeah. I think yeah. I mean, and I and I, I definitely was I have have always been like an, an extrovert, and I love going out and and, and being out in the world, but. But yeah, when I, when I have time to myself, it's just it's always been the same. It's just like, yeah, like practicing guitar and just like trying to to better myself and and I think that it's made me like a really dedicated um, different person. And I yeah, I'm I'm really glad that I started so young.
0: You're speaking almost of it like a religion, like this is something you've like yeah. found spiritual sort of satisfaction from.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's just like, it's just always been like, it's always just been like top of my importance list, always there, yeah. always, oh, you can never be the best guitar player. So <laughs> I always liked that, that I, that I always had to be working really hard for something and it's pretty much like always on my mind. And it's, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad that, that I can do it as a job and just like always have a guitar in my hands for, as of right now. And Um, In high school, I I put myself in, like, every single music and guitar class so that I could just, senior year, almost every class was an elective where I had a guitar. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I've I've tried other instruments and other outlets and stuff, and I always just, I always circle back to uh, just, like, obsessively practicing guitar.
0: (laughs) Now, you said something before how you're like, well, what drives you is that you'll never be the best guitar player, so it always pushes you to to improve and to try to get better. In your yeah. mind, is there like a pinnacle for you? Is there like a like a best guitar player for you that is the ultimate hero? Uh no. <laughs> I
1: have I have a lot of like favorite guitar players, but but I just been like a really big fan of like distinct style and, and I feel like I don't find myself like seeking out the best. To want to emulate or look up to, I just, I just love like style and like, you know, uh, like a, a real identifiable uh, guitar player. Like I love like Sheer Mag and Television, um, and like Mark Kozelik is one of my favorite guitar players of all time. And oh, yeah. like I'm sure that he could shred over everybody if he wanted to. But I, I like the subtlety in his songs and like. The, the open tunings and the the grates and, you know, there, there's just so much to be said for someone who can who you can tell could, could maybe, like, shred everyone's faces off in the room, but also can hold that back and, and create something really special with subtleties and uh, eloquence.
0: Right. And I
1: think that that's something I always look for when I'm listening to music.
0: You know, I'm trying to think of the last time that like Kozlik shredded because I mean, I love like Ghost of the Great Highway. That's like one of my favorite albums ever. Me and, too. And there's like some awesome guitar playing on that. But like lately, he's not really soloing anymore. I, yeah. I, hasn't done that in years, I don't think.
1: I mean, I I really like Sun Kil Moon stuff. So I yeah, I mean, I I know that he's a shredder, but I also love I love hearing like the subtle subtle, like, super amazing
0: guitar technique and stuff. So, like, on your records, you're not... I mean, what you just described, I think that's a good description of what you're playing is like, because, I mean, there's some cool guitar parts on your record, but you're not really, like, a show-off-y player. Do you flex those muscles more, like, in a live setting?
1: It depends on how fun the show is. Sometimes I'm, like, in, a, in like, a like a wild mood, and I will, like, unleash the shred. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's pretty rare. I mean, the record is also, like, very um, face value and clean. There's not a lot of uh, guitar effects on it. Um, and that's just because I, I just was, like, really interested in, like, preserving the, like, open-tuning, uh, beautiful, peaceful aspects of the songs that, that wouldn't come through in, like, a, a, like a lo-fi garage setting you know right. and i wanted like I, I was so um hellbent on on just keeping everything really clean um and i, I think that's just I, there there could definitely be a lot more shred on it and, and we had like a day or two of overdub sessions where we would like add in kind of like a shreddy part and then <laughs> just take it out because i i just wanted to keep everything super uh minimal and and good for what it is, because I thought, you know, where where we left the songs on the record, I I just felt that there was nothing left to be taken away or added, and and I was definitely happy with them by the time we were done, and and I was like, yeah, you know, doing too much is just, like, it's just going to take away from the simplistic beauty of the songs and
0: like what I meant for them to be when I wrote them. You know, I, I feel like there has to be a snail mail EP where you just release all the guitar solos that you didn't put on the record. <laughs> you, know, you just edit them <laughs> together <laughs> with, like one long solo like a 20 minute solo and you know just cause you can't waste those all that shredding you know you got to get that out in the world so maybe you oh, have, like, yeah. have like a mega mix yeah. of shreds.
1: Like a, a B-side of just <laughs> solos
0: that'd be awesome. <laughs> I know like Smashing Pumpkins did that in the 90s. like uh, you know, there's, there's that Airplane Over the Sea box set, and they have this one, I think it's called like Pistachio Melody or something. It's like a half hour of just song fragments that Billy Corgan didn't know what to do with. So it's like one what? long song, So, which is a very Smashing Pumpkins type thing to do, like super indulgent, but it's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, like a mega snail mail guitar solo. That could be pretty cool, I think.
1: Yeah,
0: down the line. It's coming your way. <laughs> um, you know, you said something earlier that answered another question I was going to ask you, because I, I love the video uh, that uh, just went up for Heat Wave. And you mentioned, I think, before that you played hockey. Uh, and I don't know if you still play hockey, but, like, because in that video, you're, like, showing off some, like, really good – Skating skills, and this is there, there were a couple shots where I was trying to figure out if it was like a body double, and then the camera pans up and it shows that it's you. So I was like, "Wow, she's actually doing all this skating! Like, are you are you still a hockey player?"
1: Um, I'm not. I I was like sort of rolling the idea back and forth in my mind about joining like an adult like rec league because I obviously don't have time to to play super competitively or anything. But I don't even really have time to do the. <laughs> So, like, rec league, um, ideally, if, if there was time off between records, I would love to go back to hockey. But for now, I just hone in the, the skating on, like, Thursday nights. There's, like, a roller rink near me that has, like, a really awesome skate that's, like, for, like, experienced skaters. So there's not, like, little kids on the ground or, like, people, <laughs> like, tripping all over. It's just people skating really well. And they always play, like, really awesome, like, hip-hop and r and So, that's sort of when I'm home, which is extremely rare at this point, I try to catch Thursday night roller skates so that I can sort of keep from getting too rusty.
0: Yeah, and I like that you don't have patience for the kids. Like, get the kids out of here, (laughs) experienced skaters only, no time to mess around here.
1: I I love to see new skaters. I think it's awesome, and I I wish I could help them all and, (laughs) and just... Watch people learn to skate and find that enjoyment for the first time, but at the same time, it's like the rules get stricter when there's little kids around and they're like you know and they're skating backwards, you no know, like zooming around and and you have to take some responsibility because you know what what happens if you run down at somebody's child on the on the <laughs> skating rink just because you have to be a show off <laughs> so I have to like. I got to like
0: sometimes reel it in. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, cuz you shred on the guitar and you shred on the skates and you can't hold back. You got to like let your skills out in both arenas. Yeah, I yeah. mean.
1: Yeah, shredding's my life. What can I say?
0: Exactly. I feel like we're getting to the bottom of Lindsey Jordan here. It's about shredding in all facets of life.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I shred through I shred through books. I like to shred through <laughs> Chipotle on tour. I'll shred through uh Making a record, shred on the ice, shred on the roller rink. Uh, That's the way to shred live. Through interviews. Exactly.
0: I think you're shredding this interview right now for sure. Yeah. And,
1: shred, shredding, shredding a lot of interviews. This week. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I've, my hockey, uh, my hockey knowledge is limited, but like, would your team be like the Capitals? Uh,
1: yeah, Caps are my team.
0: Okay, and who's the guy on there? Like the, because like the Caps never like, advanced far in the playoffs, right? Isn't it, like, isn't that right. their thing? And, like, who's, like yeah. and who's the, Ovechkin, right? Is that the guy? Ovechkin. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I'm, okay, I'm just saying I shredded that, because, I, again, I know very little about hockey, so, like, I think I just expended all of my hockey knowledge. In yeah, that. I mean, I'm
1: impressed. That was good.
0: <laughs> like, you could, like, if you said anything else right now, like, about another player or something, I would just believe you. You could make something up, and I wouldn't know. I mean, that's how little I know about hockey, but... uh yeah, the Caps. All right. Well, hopefully they'll make it. I mean, are they doing well this year?
1: I, I haven't been watching it all this year.
0: You have better things um, to do. You're, like, on the road all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the only time I have access to TVs are, are in hotel rooms. And then by the time we get to the hotel, it's usually, like, 1 or 2 in the morning. And I, we watch HGTV, House Hunters, or Mini House Hunters, and that's about it.
0: I mean, like, is the touring you're doing right now, I mean, is this, like, the most intense touring you've done so far?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We just got off of like we did a month and then my band boys had like a a two two week um grace period I think or a week. And uh I, I went off to do press so I sort of went straight into another one month um and now we just got home yesterday and then um and then we're heading to Europe. So it's it's been coming coming at us pretty fast but uh I really like it. And I feel like I've, like, found my sort of niche on the road and, like, how to make myself feel like I'm, like, being human and not some, like, weird road creature that, <laughs> that doesn't get out in in the sunlight and sleep and stuff. I, I just, like, there's, there's lots of hacks you can do to keep yourself from feeling like that.
0: Like, can you give me an example of something that you've started doing to you know, make yourself sane on the road?
1: Um, well, I'm a little bit of a routine freak. So I, uh, I do like, I try to stay with like Starbucks in the morning and whole foods at night. Cause you can get like healthy stuff and you can also like keep your, I, I like to have that routine on my side. And then I run in the morning um, and I read in the car and I like to, like, go off and do stuff by myself. So it's like you, the guys in the band and I, like, love each other so much. We don't really fight much. But I, I like to attribute it to the fact that we all get a healthy amount of separation between sound checks and loadings and loadouts. I just, like, will disappear for a couple hours and be back right in time to get on stage.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems like the hardest part about being on the road, like, like just looking at it from the outside is, like, not having alone time. You know that seems like that'd be. Really, I know for me that'd be really crucial because you're always around people, either in the van or at the show. And I would think that would get claustrophobic if if you can't separate yourself.
1: Yeah, um, it's all about it's all about like creating fake isolation for yourself. Like sometimes I'll like bring my laptop in the car and I'll like watch DVDs and I'll just like put a blanket over my head so the sunlight doesn't come in so I can watch the screen and also so I can just like be in my own little like self-created cave and I mean you can like trick yourself into feeling like you have time to yourself it's all about the, the headphones in the book
0: right right you know uh, my friend uh Steve he he used to play in this band called the Black Crows and in the mid-90s they they toured with the Rolling Stones and he told the story about how like one day he got to like party with the Stones after the show and they were in Europe somewhere and like the Stones they they basically like would stay in these like hotels that were like condos and they hired people to haul their stuff so like when they got to their room they'd have like all of their personal like photos and records and like all these effects. So it was basically like they were in their own apartment or their own home wherever they went. Wow. So that's
1: kind of, that's like that's like level ten touring. That's incredible.
0: So you know, maybe the next tour you can hire someone to just haul all of your things and you can live like the stones. I'm sure you're just like a tour or two away from that.
1: Yeah, we're basically there. Um, (laughs) I actually just read the Justin Bieber tour rider. and It's like really long. I don't know if you saw it. I I can't remember what outlet the, the list was on, but he has like on the rider, he has like a massage table and like a masseuse and like a hot tub and like a ping pong table (laughs) and like uh, all of this crazy stuff so that he can like have the option to do all these different things. And then my favorite part about it is that he uses Dove body wash. (laughs) He has like all this extravagant, crazy stuff, like imported body oils and like people there, like chefs, like making him all these different cuisines to choose from every single night. But then like one bottle of Dove body wash. (laughs) I was like, that, that's interesting.
0: That probably reminds him of being a normal person. That's probably the one thing that he has. Oh, I, I, like I used that when I was, you know, ten years old. You know, so maybe yeah. That's his connection to normalcy, maybe as Dove. Body. I mean, yeah, respect. He,
1: yeah. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you were you were at Coachella too, and you know, in Coachella, you know, it used to be this indie music festival, and now it's like the biggest stars in the world play there. Like, did you rub shoulders with any celebs when you were at Coachella? Um,
1: not really. Like, I I saw some friends while I was there, which is great. um that it, and, and then I, I met Princess Nokia for, like, a sec, which was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, like, Ray and Alex and my band had some, like, star sightings. But I was so, like, it, I was having a really good time, but I was so, like, tired and, and just, like, kind of overwhelmed by, like, the crazy, like, huge um, festival grounds and, like, the amount of people there and, like, the vlogging and stuff that I just sort of, like kid in the trailer all weekend <laughs> i like i was like i don't know i, I watched some bands, but i i was very overwhelmed so i enjoyed myself from the artist compound trailer area yeah
0: i mean i know some people uh, some other people who played there and they've played there a couple times and they always talk about how like it's very la backstage and it can be kind of weird
1: yeah it was just like um i it was it was very like VIP, but it was, like, funny because it was, like, most of the people in the back area weren't artists. They were just, like, had special passes to, like, be in the artist compound area, which was kind of funny. Um, and so it was just, like, all these, like, I'm sure they were, like, huge internet celebs, but I I have to admit, I don't spend that much time on, like, YouTube or Instagram or anything, so I felt <laughs> like an old person, and I was maybe, like, one of the youngest artists playing. I was, like, I don't know who any of these guys are uh <laughs> but i i take my curiosity i really wanted to know i was like asking everybody i was like does anybody know who any of these like they're definitely Celeste but does anybody know and like nobody we were hanging out with had any idea so
0: yeah it's amazing how uh, you'll see these people like the youtube stars or whatever they'll have like 13 million followers or something and you've never heard of them before but like they make like millions of dollars a year because they have huge followings. So
1: yeah, it's it's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, um, it, it's gotta be like a pyramid yeah, scheme or something. Is this for real? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm way older than you are, so like I feel super old with that kind of stuff. <laughs> but like, I, I, it, it's so bizarre to me. It is definitely an alternate universe. Yeah, no, it is. I think it's
1: just, I think it just goes over my head a little because um, I just like never. I, just, I never uh, just got into watching the videos or anything, but I'm sure like some, some friends at home would maybe know for me if, <laughs> if I like, showed them a, a huge picture of everyone at Coachella. Someone would probably be able to pick up.
0: Yeah. Well, who uh, knows? I mean, ne- next time you go to Coachella, I mean, you may very well be one of the celebs that people are <laughs> breaking about meeting, you know, after your record comes I'm out. I'll one of those
1: people that everyone's like, I know that person's doing something here but i don't i don't know
0: what it is she's a guitar player she's a guitar player and she shreds and she shreds as a hockey player we know these two things about her (laughs) so that's enough to know i think like i said i really love the record um and i know a lot of people love the record it seems like this is one of the records that people are really looking forward to hearing so congratulations with it i mean it seems like it's going great and thank you so much for talking with me
1: yeah thank you so much
0: all right lindsay take care all right, you too. Bye. All right, that was me and Lindsay Jordan. Man, Lindsay's awesome. Man, I really like her a lot. It, it's fun to talk to someone whose music you like, you know. And I really like that snail mail record, Lush, which again it, it comes out in June. Um, but when you actually talk to someone and they're they're funny and they're nice and they're engaging and you just get a good vibe from them, it just makes you that much more into the music that they make, you know. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm a critic. But there is a part of me that's rooting for her to do well. You know, I hope, you know, she does well with that record. And I hope the people around her keep out a lot of the music industry bullshit, you know, because she is still a kid, you know. I I hope that she is not chewed up by this industry and she can stand strong and have a long career because I think she has that in her. So, Good luck to Lindsay. Thank you for talking with me. We're going to get back to the conversation here in a minute, but I just want to tell you about my new book. It's called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It is out now at your favorite bookseller. Uh, It's a book about the rise and fall of the classic rock era. Artists of the 60s and 70s. I'm talking about Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, all these people that you've heard on Classic Rock Radio forever. They were codified... Uh, into this generation of bands that uh, was sort of frozen in ember for the longest time. And now we're experiencing them starting to retire or in some cases even pass away. And uh, I wrote a book about that. I wrote about my own sort of firsthand experience with that, as well as looking at the sort of historic and critical arc of this music. If you like this podcast, I think you're going to like the book. It's basically like listening to me talk, except you don't have to hear me yap. You just see my words on the page. It's funny. It's sad. It's exciting. It's depressing in parts, but I think it's a good read. So again, the book is called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It is available now wherever you buy books. Okay, enough shilling. Let's get back to our conversation. And now we're going to transition here into my interview with Molly Rankin, of always. Um, I saw always at the Homecoming Festival in Cincinnati, the Nationals Curated festival, which was a great time. I'd never seen Always before. I've I've loved their records for a couple of years now. Um and they were a great live band. You know, I wasn't sure how they would be live. I mean the records are so great and delicate and beautiful and so well put together. Sometimes that doesn't translate to a live setting. And uh they were a really great rock band, you know, a band you could just go see live and every song is good. It's like one after another, just knocking them out. So, um, I think that band has a really bright future as well. Two great records already, and uh, Molly, uh, you know, was clearly a very sharp person, good head on her shoulders, and we had a good conversation. So let's get to my conversation with Molly Rankin of the band Always. So I was looking at your your upcoming tour schedule, and it looks like you're playing a lot of festivals. And, of course, we're here at the Homecoming Festival here, and this is a smaller festival, more artist-curated and then it goes all the way up the line to these really big festivals where there's dozens of bands, really ginormous stars. I'm wondering, like, from the band's perspective, like, what's the range of experiences at festivals like this? I mean, is it pretty uniform, are are they all the same, or do you find, like, you get treated better at some than others, some are more fun to play than others, like, what's that like?
2: It's always so hard to predict, actually. Like, sometimes if things are really cushy and (laughs) the food is great and there's a ton of backstage space, you get on stage and it's a complete disaster, and there's one person running the stage. It's, it's actually, I feel like a festival is a really hard thing to run well and uh, efficiently, especially now. I don't know if, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the bills are filled uh, you know, predominantly with hip hop and electronic music, which is great, um, but I just feel like it would be really hard to figure out what people want.
0: Well, I was gonna say, like, with a band like yours too, is it hard to compete with like more party-friendly music? You know, <laughs> like, does it ever get hard? Because I mean, I, I mean, I feel like your music would translate anywhere, but it seems like maybe it would be better in a theater or a club sometimes than like in an open-air festival at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Like, is it hard to put across your music in an environment like that?
2: I think that sometimes the day sets can be a little bit soul-sucking depending on which festival you're at. If you get to play at night, you're pretty lucky. Depends on who you're playing at the same time as as well. Like we just did Coachella and we were playing at the same time as Fleet Foxes and Haim. And so I, I think we did pretty well. Like I couldn't believe that people were in our tent to watch, you know, like a guitar band. Um, but then, like, you know, you walk by something like Migos or Cardi B, and it's just, like, completely wild. Like, no room for anyone anywhere. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. It's humbling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, that, so it's not discouraging, then, on, like, for you, like, to see that?
2: Uh, I mean, every day I feel really grateful for every show we play and people walk through the door and pay money to watch us play, and it kind of blows my mind, so I I, I don't feel all that cynical about how we fit into the scheme of festivals right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're on your second record now. Both records have done really well. Does that get easier? Does touring get easier? I don't know what your touring amenities are like now, but in terms of just audiences and winning them over, has that gotten better for you or is, is it kind of always a struggle with that?
2: Everything has definitely been a learning experience. We started out opening for bands, getting any show that we could and Alec and I would do all of the driving. We started in you know, a hatchback and then a van uh, and then we had a van and trailer for a long time up until the fall and now we're on a bus, which is oh. wild to, uh, to us. So. Life is way better now, just like waking up in the city that you're playing, your day sort of belongs to you, and you're not so lenient on gas station food. Because if you're in a van, um, you're driving, you're waking up at like 8 a.m., you're driving six, seven hours, and then you're loading in, sound checking, and then you play, and you see the inside of the bar, and that's it if you have time to grab dinner or whatever but so this this is like a new lifestyle change for us we're all we're all feeling a little bit guilty about it
0: (laughs) are those the kind of benchmarks like the real benchmarks that bands have like i was talking to matt and aaron from the national yesterday and to get back to the festival topic they were talking about how when they were a younger band, they would, they would look at the font sizes on posters and be like, oh, we bumped up a font size or we're <laughs> higher up on the poster. And that, you know, and that is like a status thing for, for, for people. It's like, okay, it's, it can be a sign of prominence or whatever. Um, but like having a bus is that sort of like, okay, we're on a certain level here. We can maybe feel a little more secure in what we're doing.
2: Oh, great question. No, I'm a little bit stressed about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just makes more sense with time. Like, we would yeah. never make it to the venue if, with the way that the tour has been booked if we were driving in a van. Yeah. Um, for example, yesterday we played a show with Big Thief, and they're uh, driving in a van, and they left at 6.30 in the morning to get to the show, and they were like an hour and a half late, and then they woke up at 7 to get to this festival today. Oh, man. But yeah, so that's like more our comfort zone is that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know, I've never looked at the font size on a festival.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Really, like honestly?
2: Yeah, I mean like same as I don't, I'd really try not to read reviews and I just, like, judge it by whether or not people are still coming to the shows.
0: I mean, is that a conscious effort on your part, or are you sort of naturally able to separate yourself from that?
2: It's conscious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you let that... I mean, I'm the type of person that if, if I see something really venomous, it just bounces around in my brain for a long period of time, so I just, like, refrain from looking at that stuff
0: yeah I've talked to musicians who are like, Yeah, my I don't read that stuff, but then, like, my friend will email it to me, like, did you see this terrible thing someone wrote about you? It's like, why did you send this to me?
2: That actually does happen. I've had <laughs> that a few times where it's like, can you believe someone wrote this about you And, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes, I can
0: <laughs> I, 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 you alluded to this before. I would think that when because like when you start in your career, you don't know if anyone's going to even listen to your record, so you, you're kind of in a bubble. You just do what you think is the best thing, and then you know you just put out your second record. And you know you know at that point that you had an audience. People are going to be anticipating what you're doing. So I mean, I would think like trying to block that stuff out, not letting other people's opinions influence what you do. I mean, is that a, is that a hard thing? I guess as you progress in your career.
2: Um. Yeah, it's kind of inescapable, like I think to be in a band it's pretty hard not to have social media or, you know, I mean, we basically had to, had to have three different types of social media
0: or we would be
2: in the bad books with, you know, with our labels. And if it were up to me, I'd maybe have one.
0: So like Twitter, Instagram and Facebook?
2: Yeah, that's what we have, and I th- we probably have... Oh, yeah, I think they tried to make us get Snapchat, but I just can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, like, our labels are really cool, but you need to exist. You need to be tangible. Yeah. But we don't really use it very often. Yeah.
0: I, 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 do you do it yourself, or do you have, like, someone who will tweet out things?
2: Um, most of alec will usually tweet things i say just like out in the open uh and then i, I usually laugh at what he what he you know selects yeah. <laughs> to tweet but yeah i don't i don't do it very often if i see a picture i like i'll be like put that up right or i'll put it up or whatever
0: i mean it does break your brain i know for me i'm trying to be on less because i feel like if you're on twitter too much first you get wrapped up in what twitter cares about and then you also start to get this weird thing of like, oh, they like this previous tweet, but they don't like this tweet as much. And it's like, why am I obsessing over faves and retweets? It's It just becomes this bizarre thing.
2: Yeah, people will be like, make sure you post it at 11 a.m. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right, the
0: peak tweet times. So I was reading a little bit about your, your your background, and you're from Nova Scotia, or like northern Nova Scotia?
2: Yeah, I'm from Cape Breton. So it's a sort of an island that's connected by a causeway to Nova Scotia.
0: And like, like how populous? Is
2: I actually don't even know. I don't. I, I just don't know how many people are on there. But I, I can say that um, the closest movie theater I think would be about an hour drive. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I didn't watch a whole lot of movies in the theater when I was little. Spent a lot of time like drawing and and playing outside with our keyboardist Carrie in the woods. Um, Yeah, so it it was a very nice place to grow up as a kid.
0: Did you feel that at the time, though? I mean, like, when you were a kid, were you like, I wish I could go to see, you know, whatever, Transformers or something?
2: Not really, because you don't know what you're missing out on. I mean, like, if it was Star Wars, we would go. You know, we'd find a way to go or whatever. But, um, yeah, I I think you just don't really know any different. Like, a lot of people ask me what it's like to have a dad who is in, like, a, a, you know, quasi-famous... Folk Celtic band, and at growing up, and it just was not any different than anything I had already known. So it was completely normal to me. Yeah,
0: because I was reading about this too. Your dad was in the Rankin Family, which was a big folk group in Canada. If you could like, contextualize this, because like a lot of Americans listen, are listening, probably aren't familiar with the Rankin Family. I mean, they were like sort of like a big folk revival band, like in the '90s, right?
2: Yeah. It's, um, th- my family is quite Scottish. Like they're a big part of, you know, what what they were playing was like Celtic-based music, um, and so they did very well in Canada and pockets of the states as well, and, and toured in the U.K. a lot. But um, I think they mean a lot to many people in Canada. Their their songs are um, are basically pop songs, so they just sort of like were played throughout various people's childhoods, yeah. you know, in on family trips and and things like that.
0: So like. To make an analogy, would it be sort of like a Mumford and Sons or Avett Brothers of Canada-type situation? Oh,
2: interesting. Um, I don't know. I almost want to say they're kind of like a Celtic ABBA or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man, now I definitely have to listen to Rankin Family. That sounds uh, awesome. I don't
2: know if that's right, but whatever. I
0: mean, and I was reading too, because your dad was a fiddle player, and then you started playing fiddle like at a pretty young age, right?
2: Yeah, I started when I was about 10. And there were just like fiddles lying around the house, and same with pianos. And I was always a little uh, Scottish step dancer because that's what uh, my grandparents wanted to see when I was little. They would just, you know, get up and dance for everyone, and that was a lot of fun. But um, I started playing the fiddle, and I did that until maybe high school. Then I tried out for a a musical and started singing. That was a, you know, um, a necessary element that I needed in order to be in the play, so I just, I wrote like an original song and played it for the audition and then I just that's got the ball rolling for me
0: and I mean was that something you really loved doing or did you feel like you had to do that you said before like like your grandma wanted to see you (laughs) dance and stuff like did did you feel like well I have to follow the family tradition or did you take to the fiddle as a kid
2: the fiddle was a lot of fun actually I think when my dad Uh, He was sort of like my mentor, so we played a lot together, and I had a very similar style to his. And so when he died, I feel like some of the fire that was underneath me sort of just burned out, and I was just sort of like going through the motions and trying to retrace the steps that he had laid out for me. But um, I don't know, I was also becoming a teenager, and it's like not really that cool to play Celtic music on the fiddle when you're a teenager, even though in hindsight, it really is. Oh yeah, especially
0: if you're good, you were know? <laughs> yeah. good. I'm always intrigued too, like, like the fiddle and violin, because it's the same instrument, but it's like a different style, right? Or is yeah, it? Or, it's,
2: I mean, I think so, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, like people say violin is classical, right. uh, but I always said the fiddle. I, I didn't want to sound like pretentious. It's like a more
0: down home, way to say violin
2: yeah exactly
0: <laughs> did you still play at all Do you ever pick it up or feel tempted to do uh, it
2: I played a little bit actually on our record um, just uh, random melodies that I you know we, we didn't really hire we hired one person to play viola in a in a specific part on the record but I played um, a lot of the things that I envisioned string arrangements doing things that we couldn't emulate on keyboards
0: yeah, like, I didn't really know much about your background until I was getting ready to talk to you and it occurred to me when I was when I heard about the Celtic background, Celtic music background, that you can almost hear a little bit of that in your vocals in all ways. I mean, do you feel like that's been an influence for you, like in your subsequent music?
2: Probably. I always rely on other people to tell me what what I objectively sound like, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm usually drawn to Scottish bands. I love Tracy and Campbell and um, like El- Elizabeth Fraser and just. Kind of more people with a bit of a Celtic lilt, I guess. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I guess I think, I mean, are you a a soprano or would you be like a high alto?
2: I have such a narrow range; it's crazy. (laughs) I don't know if I even have a specific range. It's that's why, like, we have to be very specific about the songs we cover because there's really nothing I can cover.
0: Because I mean, because again, like, just some of the melodies that you sing in the songs and the sort of, I guess, the, the higher register that you're singing it, it kind of. I wouldn't have occurred to me to think folk music without knowing your background but then when I read that it it made a connection in my mind maybe that they're maybe that carried over
2: yeah I think that's that's probably the truth it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I started listening to the Smiths and the Replacements and Teenage Fan Club and the Magnetic Fields and bands like that the Dolly mixture Um, but yeah this record has so much falsetto on it that I I can't even drink anymore. I have to be so <laughs> militant about everything.
0: When did you start singing? Was that as a kid? Yeah. Like, in, like the school plays and stuff?
2: Yeah, like I did it at home. I was a total show off. Like <laughs> wanted to be the center of attention at all times. And uh, and then with that play, I started actually singing in public. Okay. Yeah.
0: And was that always a pretty comfortable thing for you to do?
2: I don't know. I still don't feel comfortable doing it. I am. I still. I really like that. your
0: voice a lot. Yeah,
2: I well, thanks. I mean,
0: so you're picking the right songs then, because if you're telling me you don't have a great range, like you, you fooled me then, because it's like she sounds good on every song. So you're picking the right songs, I guess.
2: Oh well, thanks for saying that. <laughs> Sometimes when I write something, I'm like, I'm very self-conscious about being able to, to be able to sing a specific part. More than once, ever. I always feel like it's a coincidence that I hit that note, or that I'm imitating someone who sings. Yeah. Uh, because I think I, I, basically sing through my nose. I've been, I've been told that.
0: <laughs> really? um, you you mentioned that you started listening to The Smiths and replacements, a lot of those sort of 80s and 90s uh, indie rock bands, like just like in your early 20s. And I read something that Alec turned you on to bandwagon-esque, and like didn't he like get you like two copies of that record one for the car and one for at home
2: yeah exactly yeah we both became big teenage fan club fans i met him around the same time that i started listening to more guitar based rock i guess because
0: you're playing like folk music like sort of like a singer songwriter type music yeah. right
2: in that stuff uh i realized that i was writing a bunch of songs that i probably wouldn't ever listen to <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then I think I just started to understand influence a little bit better, like how to how to have those things that you love to listen to rub off in your in your writing. Um, but I never want to be too good at that yeah. because then you just start taking other people's things. <laughs>
0: like, like, what was it about Bandwagon Ask in particular that made an impression on you? Because I I love that record too.
2: Um, I really like how cohesive it is as a record. They all the songs meld together but are different. I think that's a really great skill to have: is to keep people um, excited but also stay true to to a the theme of a record. Yeah. Um, but I also loved Catholic Education. Like, um, everything flows is probably my favorite song of all time. Yeah, that's a great song.
0: And one connection I would make between your band and Teenage Fan Club is that you both have that right guitar buzz sound that sounds melancholy. (laughs) There's like a distinctive buzz sound like where if you get a little bit too buzzy it sounds sort of ugly and if there's not enough it maybe sounds too clean but there's like that right range like where uh, it sounds like you're sort of remembering something that you forgot that broke your heart from the past and now it's like brought back to you in the present tense. like that's how I would describe always in, in Teenage Fan Club too. Uh, can you talk about like how the sound of the band evolved?
2: Well, when we first made the record, it was still kind of just my songwriting project. And when we got to Calgary and uh, we started recording with Chad Van Galen, who's um, an artist based out of Calgary. Uh, He was the one who detected that we were more of a band. Like the songs that I was writing at the time catered more to a band situation. And so we generally just found a couple of our friends who were willing to hop in the van and take the weekend off and play shows with us, and it stuck. Um, But Alec and I always wanted a ton of guitar interplay and that's what our band is. It's like a battle between my voice and his guitar and then I'm also interjecting with my guitar. I just didn't expect for Carrie's synth to be such a big blanket over everything, which it totally is. I think it's sometimes what separates us for different bands is her keyboards. Right.
0: Yeah. And, And is it you and Alec writing the songs?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, um, things usually start in my brain and I usually demo things and make a case for a song as, as go as far with it as I possibly can. So I usually have a lot of it done and then I present it to Alec and tell him everything that I want to do with it, influence-wise or tone-wise. And then it either stays very similar or it completely changes. And it's uh, an ugly process. <laughs>
0: well, I was going to say, the way you described it before about how your voice and his guitar battling each other, that's like a great way to put it. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of it that way, but that, that's totally right. Is the songwriting process also a little bit of a battle, like getting that balance?
2: Totally, that's, um, that's our thing, is that we're very honest with each other, and it's not always pretty. <laughs> and. The, the day we stop being honest with each other is probably when she, we should pack it in yeah. it's just really important to be objective and be like, Ugh, this sucks it you yeah. <laughs> kill your darlings, I guess like this is a good idea, but it can't be used
0: yeah. Is it hard to get to that place though like where you can be honest and not like hurt someone 's feelings or create fights because it seems like with a lot of bands that's where a lot of conflict comes in where you get different egos and it's hard to balance that out.
2: Well, we don't really have that much of a democracy in the writing process. It's basically like two dictators scrapping over, over what happens and then once it's pretty much ironed out, we bring it to practice.
0: Like, how do you know when, you're, when, when you've ironed it out?
2: Uh, when, we, when we need to figure out drums. <laughs> when the drum machine isn't like doing its, the song justice anymore. Yeah. But I think we would probably be a drum machine band if we if we could, even <laughs> though Sheridan's incredible yeah. but um, I'd just love to not ever think about drums
0: so in terms you mentioned influence you know sort of welcoming that into your music making was a big kind of uh, transition for you or evolution for you have you have any other influences kind of entered your purview recently, like, I mean, it's early yet. I don't know if you're thinking of the next Always record yet, but um, are you still kind of in that sort of '80s, '90s indie frame of mind, or are other kinds of music entering like your influence, maybe?
2: I don't ever want to try to do something that's not really my place. <laughs> <laughs> I am thinking about what we can do next, but
0: so you're gonna—you're uh, not gonna be rapping on the next record?
2: <laughs> oh no. No, I will not. I'll keep that for backstage. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I actually have a couple weeks after we finish this very long tour to be on my own and start writing again. And I have been writing a little bit here and there, but um, I will see what happens when I when I come back from that trip. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I want to ask you about this uh, this PSA you posted. I, th- I think it was last week on your Instagram about groping at shows. <laughs> and obviously, I mean, you had your own experience where some yahoo tried to kiss. Was that in Belgium or something? Tried to kiss you on stage?
2: Yeah. So um, that happened in Antwerp. And then last week, someone else came on stage and grabbed me really? around the waist. Yeah, during a show. So I. It, I'm pretty easygoing as far as hanging out with people and even if someone gets up on stage I don't really mind but as soon as it's like a large man and they're grabbing you I just I feel like something needed to be said whether that just changed slightly changes the atmosphere of of a show or if a couple of people end up seeing you know the scribble I I wrote out and and it's on their radar at least. I don't really know how, how much that'll translate, but I do feel like if I didn't say something, it would have been bottled up inside. And I don't really want to change what we do. Like, I don't want to feel afraid on stage. Yeah. And I don't want to be, I still want to meet people after the show and because that's like the most gratifying part of touring is, you know, when we used to work the merch table, that, that was Carrie and I's favorite part.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I mean, obviously, women are aware of this problem at shows, but I feel like m- most men probably don't even think about it or they're not aware of it. I, is this, I mean, do you hear from fans of yours who have had this i mean you' you've experienced it firsthand, but like at your shows, like do you feel like, like how prevalent do you feel like this is?
2: Um, I actually can't speak for anyone who's ever been at uh, our shows. I hear that it's common at most shows, so, you know, that breaks my heart, and I'd love for things to change. I don't ever want anyone to feel uncomfortable at a show, and I know it just as a tiny person that it can be that way, but if it crosses the line and, and people are touching others, it's just, it seems like a common sense thing, but it really is not. Yeah. It, there, there's some serious recalibrating that needs to occur. Yeah,
0: I, I just think, I think some guys think it's cute I think certainly, they like to go on stage and try to like kiss a singer on stage. They might think, "Oh, I'm being bold or daring in some way." And-
2: it's, I don't know, it's just like a way to take away my power. Right. <laughs> I don't know, if they only knew, knew how much of a monster I am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, it's just dehumanizing, it's like, well, she's not an actual person, so it doesn't matter if I just go up there, it's just someone I, you know, they're, they're an entertainer, so who cares?
2: Yeah, another thing is that we have a lot of projections in our show, so it's, I'm kind of looking into headlights, Oh. So I often can't see when someone's on stage. Okay. I don't know if I should share that, but yeah, it's like really easy, and uh, and so I didn't even really notice until he was touching me that there was someone on stage. Because as a performer, you're kind of trained to ignore everything right. around you and just keep on with the show. But
0: well, I definitely think it's worth talking about. I think the only way that's going to change is if people self-police, you know, and if they see someone doing that to like. To say you're an idiot don't do that get out of here
2: yeah and if men could police themselves as well like right. i feel like women are quite vocal about that and non-women,
0: non-women. Well, yeah i think it has to be other guys that do that
2: yeah that would yeah. be helpful <laughs> <laughs>
0: pour beer on his head and get him out of there um so you're playing at night tonight then you're playing i i think at like eight o'clock yeah or like, so like yeah. right at dusk so that's got to be, you know, that's not the daytime slot versus Migos. You're getting, like, oh. the prime time, like, beautiful slot there.
2: Yeah, it's, it's very scenic. Have you been down there yet? Yeah,
0: I saw Julian Baker played there last night, oh. and it was uh, it was dead silent crowd, like, in a good way, because it just transfixed. But it kind of seems like the perfect slot, is, because you'll be playing, like, the sun will be facing you, so you'll, wait, no, I, well, no wait, I'm trying to remember if the sun is behind you or... Ahead of you. At any rate, they, you, you'll be seeing the sun go down as you play, so it'll be really nice.
2: Cool. I'm excited to see Feist do in oh, yeah. the National and Big Thief. Yeah. It was on very soon, actually. Yeah, exactly. She'd get down
0: there. Yeah, know, me too. <laughs> all right. Well, Molly, thank you so much for giving me time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, take care. Cool. <laughs> all right, that was me and Molly Rankin. Of always, talking about Teenage Fan Club, talking about touring, talking about playing big festivals, all that stuff. Enjoying our drag breakfast (laughs) was a good time. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. As always, I gotta give a thanks to our producer, the man who puts everything together, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek, for everything as always. Gotta give a shout out to Josh Copperman, the man who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast, spreading the word, spreading the Celebration Rock gospel. Thank you so much for listening and uh, supporting the podcast Uh, You are the reason that we're here, so uh, we always appreciate that you're out there listening. Uh, Thanks again, guys, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.